Chapter 74 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gjerset. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hakon Magnusson the Elder, The Change of Norway's Foreign Policy. King Erik Magnusson had no sons, and his brother, Duke Hakon, succeeded him on the throne. Hakon was not in Bergen when the king died, as his marriage to Euphemia, daughter of Gunther of Arnstein, Count of Rupen, had just been celebrated at Oslo, but when he received the news, he hastened to Bergen, where he was proclaimed king, August 10, 1299. Later in the fall, he and his queen were both crowned in his residence city of Oslo. Hakon Magnusson the Elder, or Hakon V, was twenty-nine years of age when he became king. He had been well educated according to the standards of the times. He could speak and write both Latin and French, and both in appearance and ability he formed a contrast to his weak and sickly brother. The Icelanders called him Hauleg, long legs, which indicates that he was tall and well built. His determination to rule according to his own ideas, to make the king's power absolute, and to weaken the power and influence of the aristocracy, proves that he was a man of great energy and willpower. But he was rather harsh and autocratic, something of a pedant, and he seems to have lacked the intuitive foresight of a great statesman. His reign, says Alexander Bugge, is a turning point in the history of Norway. With him the older period closes, and a new period begins, not only in the external history, but also in the development of spiritual and material life in Norway. Hawken was the last male member of the royal family, as all sidelines had become extinct. During his brother's reign, he had seen the barons exercise an influence in the government which he viewed with deep regret, and in the neighboring kingdoms, Denmark and Sweden, the nobles had formed a strong oligarchy. He feared nothing so much as the recurrence of the conditions which had obtained in the time of Eric. The establishing of a regency, or the election of a king, if the royal family became extinct, might endanger the stability of the throne. It became his great care, therefore, to secure the succession to the royal family. But this problem became very difficult, as the only child born to him in wedlock was a daughter, Ingebjörg. But neither Ingebjörg nor his illegitimate daughter Agnes, who was a few years older, could inherit the throne. If Ingebjörg had a legitimate son, he would stand in order of succession, but Ingebjörg herself was excluded, as well as Agnes and her children. Hawkins succeeded, finally, in bringing about a change in the law of succession by which Ingebjörg herself and her children, and also the legitimate sons of Agnes, could succeed to the throne. In case a regency had to be created, it should consist of twelve members, whose duties and powers were strictly determined, and the king should not be of age until he was twenty years old. Though although the question of succession had been settled, the possibility of a regency had not been eliminated. He feared the lendermend, whose rank and titles had now become almost hereditary. In case of a regency, they might again gain the ascendancy, he thought. In order to prevent this, he determined to abolish the titles of Jarl and Lendermand, and to retain only that of Knight. Thereby, the old hereditary aristocracy would be destroyed, and the knights, who received their titles from the king, would become personally attached to him. This plan was carried out by a royal decree issued in 1308, but the provision was made that the lendermen, then living, should retain their title and dignity during their lifetime. He also organized the priests of the royal chapels into a distinct clergy, which should stand under the direct supervision of the king. 
P. A. Munch observes that Haakon Magnusson was manifestly emulating King Philip the Fair of France, who at this time was engaged in humbling the clergy and the aristocracy, and in making the royal power supreme. Haakon waged no great wars, but the hostile entanglements with Denmark were continued, and to these were also added serious troubles with Sweden, growing out of the closer relations established with that kingdom through the marriage of King Haakon's daughters to Swedish dukes. Aside from the humdrum of these petty wars, carried on at intervals with the neighboring states, in which no clearly defined policy of statesmanship is visible, Hawkins' reign was uneventful enough. But in his time, as well as in the days of his brother Eric, Norway's whole foreign policy underwent a complete change, which was fraught with the gravest consequences to the country's future history. Norway had hitherto maintained the closest relations with the British Isles. New intellectual impulses had been carried over the waves from the west ever since the Viking expeditions began. Great trade centers, like Dublin and Bristol, had been developed by the Norsemen, and the British Isles had formed the pivot of their commercial activity. When England developed her own commerce, her merchants established a lucrative trade with Norway, and the friendly relations always maintained between the two countries proved the importance of this traffic to both peoples. The Norwegians had hitherto been a seafaring and commercial nation. Norway had maintained an insular policy, and had taken no direct part in continental affairs. But Eric Magnusson and Haakon V severed the bonds which for centuries had existed between Norway and England, and plunged their country into continental wars and political intrigues. Henceforth the Norwegians ceased to be a maritime nation, and Norway became politically a part of the continent. Personally, the kings, no doubt, had the best intentions, and were guided by the most upright motives, but they ruled in a critical period, and had to deal with problems which would have put more sagacious statesmen to a severe test. We have seen that when Eric's daughter, the Maid of Norway, died, Edward I established his overlordship over Scotland. But Eric, who had hitherto been his friend, married Isabella Bruce, and allied himself thereby with the Scotch. Through the treaty negotiated by Audun Huglegson, he had also entered into alliance with France. This agreement with France proved to be void of significance, but Eric had identified himself with Edward's enemies at a moment when England was about to begin her long wars with France and Scotland, and when she was strong enough to wage a successful combat with both of them combined. The English pursued their trade with Norway very energetically, but they had found dangerous rivals in the German merchants, who had already received important charters and privileges in Norway. The English merchants, conscious of their strength, demanded similar rights, but King Haakon would grant no such concessions. They regarded this attitude of the king as evidence of partiality and ill-will, and began to act with great arrogance. Many outrages were committed which aroused the bitterest resentment among the Norwegians, who made not a few reprisals on English shipping. As long as Edward I lived, no serious clashes occurred, but when the incompetent Edward II ascended the throne, the situation grew serious. In 1312, English fishermen on the coast of Bohuslen killed the royal Sisselmand and ten others. In Bergen, it seems that the Sisselmand Botolf arrested some English merchants and confiscated their goods, but they resisted to the utmost, and some of the king's men were killed. Exaggerated reports of these disturbances reached England. In a letter to King Haakon, Edward II complains that 400 Englishmen had been imprisoned and that goods worth 6,000 pounds had been confiscated. Haakon answered that he had not imprisoned King Edward's subjects, 
but that he had permitted them to stay with their friends, and that he had now allowed all, with the exception of six, to return to England. While the estrangement between Norway and England was growing, Haakon was strengthening the ties of friendship with Scotland. He was still at war with Denmark, at times also with Sweden, and prudence would naturally lead him to welcome every opportunity to establish amicable relations with other powers. Robert Bruce of Scotland, who was waging his heroic fight against England, studied carefully the political situation and made advances to win Haakon to his side. It is possible that he was aided in this attempt by his sister Isabella, the widow of King Eric, who was still living quietly at Bergen. The yearly sum which by the Treaty of Perth, Scotland, had engaged to pay Norway in return for the cession of the Hebrides had not been paid since Edward I established his overlordship over Scotland. This also added to Hawkins' displeasure with England, and we may suppose that Bruce offered to carry out the provisions of the treaty if Hawkins would recognize him as King of Scotland. Hawkins finally decided to act. In 1312 he accepted Bruce's invitation to send envoys to Scotland, and on the 29th of October the Treaty of Perth was renewed at Iverness, and most cordial relations were established between the two kingdoms. This did not mend the already strained relations with England, but Edward II was a weak king, and the important trade relations existing between the two countries contributed to the maintaining of peace. Over against the German merchants, Hawken acted with more energy than his weak predecessor. In 1315, he enforced the already existing rule that only those who imported malt, flour, and grain to Norway should be allowed to export from the kingdom fish and butter. The year following, he imposed a high export duty on articles bought and shipped from the country. If anyone failed to pay the duty, his ship and goods should be seized. No foreign merchants were allowed to remain in Bergen, Oslo, or Tunsberg longer than the term fixed by law. But the king's quarrel with England proved advantageous to the Germans. With the falling off of English trade, their traffic became of ever greater importance to Norway. In the early part of his reign, Hawken had been forced by circumstances to treat them with great leniency, and he soon found it necessary to modify the measures by which he had hoped to keep their traffic under control. But to the English merchants he would make no concessions. Hawken had chosen between the German merchants and the English people. Time proved that he had chosen most unwisely. He had estranged the nation with which Norway had hitherto maintained the closest and most profitable relations. He had granted favors and concessions to the country's most dangerous enemy, which before the middle of the century destroyed Norway's commerce and power at sea. And his affiliation with Scotland proved as valueless as that with France. The war with Denmark, which had lasted about twenty years, was still continued. Hawken was supported by the exiled slayers of King Eric Glipping and their adherents in Denmark. The exiles held the castles Hunehals and Varberg on the coast of Holland, and the stronghold of Hjelm, built by their leader Mark Stieg Andersen in the island of Hjelm, near the coast of Jutland. Hawken made repeated expeditions to Denmark, but no important battles were fought. The Danish king, Erik Menved, could not resist the Norwegian fleet, and Hawken seems to have made these hostile visits mainly for the purpose of enforcing his claims. In his anxiety to preserve the royal family from extinction, one of Hawkins' great cares was to find suitable husbands for his daughters. In 1302, Princess Ingeborg was betrothed to the dashing knight-errant Duke Eric, son of King Magnus Ladulas, and brother of King Berger Magnusson of Sweden, while she was a mere child. Duke Eric visited Oslo, where he spent Christmas, and Queen Euphemia, who found her chief pastime in reading chivalric romances, became quite infatuated with the brilliant duke, 
in whom she discovered all the knightly qualities of King Arthur's famous knights of the round table. Her fondest wish was to see her daughter finally united in marriage with this personified ideal of her dreams. King Hawkin does not seem to have been without some suspicion as to his prospective son-in-law's qualities of character, but in 1304 he granted him the important Konghelle as a fief. Duke Eric was very ambitious, and he felt in no way restrained by any spirit of loyalty. He planned to make himself ruler of all the Scandinavian kingdoms, and Konghelle would form a convenient center for his operations. By marrying Ingebjörg, he would secure the throne of Norway. He would drive his brother, King Berger, from the throne of Sweden, and later he might conquer Denmark. He won his brother, Duke Valdemar, to his side, and the two soon began to quarrel with King Berger, who was less able, and also less popular, than his more brilliant brother, Eric. They sought aid in Norway, and described the trouble in such a way to Hawken as to gain, for a time, his sympathy and support. But things soon took a turn which he had not expected. In 1306, the dukes treacherously captured King Berger, threw him into prison, and made themselves masters of the kingdom of Sweden. They formed a secret compact, also, with Duke Christopher of Denmark, a brother of King Eric Menved, who was to rebel against his brother and drive him from his throne and Duke Eric promised to give Konghilla to the traitorous duke, although this fief did not belong to him, but to King Haakon. Eric also sought secretly to create a party in Norway, which would favor him, and he attempted to stir up the Norwegian barons against King Haakon. These events led to a complete rupture between the king and his prospective son-in-law. Haakon demanded that Eric should return to him the fief of Konghilla, but he refused, and war broke out between Sweden and Norway, 1308. King Haakon laid siege to Konghella and constructed over against this stronghold a wooden castle, Bohus, the beginning of the later fortress of Bohus, but after some weeks he marched away without having captured the place. He now concluded peace with Denmark and entered into alliance with King Eric Menved. King Berger of Sweden, who had escaped from prison, had sought refuge in Denmark. King Berger of Sweden, who had escaped prison and had sought refuge in Denmark, was to be restored to his throne, and Princess Ingebjörg was promised in marriage to his son Magnus. Duke Eric invaded Norway and captured Oslo, but he could not take the castle of Akershus. He also attacked Jemtland and defeated a part of Hawkins' fleet at Kalfsund at the mouth of the Goethe River, where it had sought refuge in a storm. But the next year, 1309, the dukes found themselves in a most dangerous situation. King Eric Menved invaded southern Sweden with a large army, and Haakon captured Konghilla. If the two kings had cooperated properly, the dukes would, no doubt, have been defeated, but Haakon paused and undertook nothing further. Duke Eric had a powerful ally in Queen Euphemia, who probably used her influence to save her favorite. The Danes could not take the castle of Nykerping, and when winter approached they withdrew and returned home. Haakon also withdrew from Konghilla, and this stronghold again fell into Duke Eric's hands. In 1310, the dukes concluded peace with King Haakon, and agreed to cede to him Konghela, Hunehals, Varberg, and the northern part of Halland. King Haakon again agreed to receive his daughter Ingebjörg in marriage to Duke Eric, and his niece, the daughter of King Eric Magnusson, to Duke Valdemar. The marriage of the two princesses was celebrated at Oslo, September 29, 1312. But King Euphemia did not live to see this happy consummation of her fondly cherished hopes, as she died in the month of May the same year. 
1316, a son was born to each of the dukes, and Haakon V could rejoice to see the succession secured in his own family, as Ingebjörg's son, Magnus Eriksson, now became heir apparent to the throne. But before long, his joy was again turned to grief. The restored King Berger of Sweden, who had not forgotten the ignominy heaped upon him by his brothers, the dukes Eric and Valdemar, invited them to a feast of reconciliation at the castle of Nykoping, where he seized them and threw them into a dungeon, where they perished. The manner of their death is unknown, but the rumor spread that they were starved to death, as no marks of violence were seen on their bodies. The shock of this quite unexpected tragedy seems to have shortened King Hawkins' life. He died May 8, 1319, 49 years of age. Norway still appeared to be as strong and prosperous as ever heretofore. The hereditary principle, which had been so firmly adhered to, gave the throne great stability and contributed to the centralization of government in the hands of the king, whereby an efficiency in administration and a public order were secured which Norway and Sweden, torn by internal strife, might well have coveted. The Norwegian fleet was still the strongest in the north, and the colonies were firmly united with the kingdoms, but unmistakable signs of decadence, like the creeping shadows of approaching darkness, heralded the passing of Norway's national glory. The growing influence of the Hanseatic merchants, the shrinkage in Norwegian shipping and commerce, and the unhappy change of foreign policy were not more ominous signs than the decay of the national literature during the first part of the 14th century. In King Haakon's reign, a considerable literary activity was still maintained. Haakon V, no less than his queen Euphemia, showed great interest in literature, and stimulated greatly the writing of chivalric romances. He took great delight in good stories, and caused many romances to be translated from French or Greek to Norwegian. This branch of the Old Norse literature had flourished, especially in Norway, while the historic literature was almost exclusively Icelandic. Through the Viking expeditions, and still more through a lively commercial intercourse, the Norsemen came in direct contact with intellectual life in the British Isles and northern France. In earlier days, their skaldic poesy showed marked traces of Irish influence, and we find the same causes still operating later when they produced their great literature of prose romances under the influence of French and English poems of chivalry. When the saga literature produced in Norway is romance and not history, it only proves what intimate relations the Norsemen maintained with their neighbors across the sea. In many respects, the romantic sagas written in Norway bring evidence of no less originality and literary talent than the histories written by the Icelanders, for although the themes and plots of these stories are of foreign origin, many of the romantic sagas are admirably written, and show many of the best features of the sagaman's art. King Sverre and his successors were well educated. They were thoroughly in sympathy with the cultural life of Western Europe, and found great delight in reading these chivalric and romantic tales, as well as the history of their own country and the lives of the saints. We have seen how they encouraged the writing of history, which is a sufficient proof that they fully appreciated the value of this branch of the old literature, but they also encouraged the writing of romantic sagas for diversion and entertainment. The writing of romances is therefore a part of the original and creative literary activity which produced the great Old Norse literature, and when Hawken V took great delight in good stories, and caused many romances to be translated from the French or Greek to Norwegian, he only continued the literary activity of his illustrious ancestors. But a notable change had nevertheless come. The saga style had ceased to be a suitable vehicle for the thoughts and sentiments engendered in an age of chivalry. 
Adapted to this purpose, it rapidly degenerated, and the romances were becoming verbose and formless nonsense. Before the middle of the century, literary productivity ceased, and as the classic saga literature became foreign to the changed spirit of the age, it was no longer read and was gradually forgotten. At the same time, a new literature was springing up among the common people, fostered by impulses received from Germany and Denmark. This new literature of tales, ballads, and folk songs, half epic and half lyric, afforded new opportunity for a suitable expression of the thoughts and feelings of the age. Norway's first great literary period was closed. The shrill blasts of the war trumpets died away, and the martial notes of the skaldic poetry changed into cooing love songs and plaintive ballads. The manly vigor which had raised the Norsemen to power and prominence was ebbing, and growing decay had fallen upon national life like an evil destiny. But the old forms of culture passed, only to germinate after a period of rest into more perfect growth. It is the ebb and flow of human life, both alike necessary to its constant rejuvenation and its permanent progress. End of chapter 74 End of History of the Norwegian People Volume 1 by Knut Gershit This book has been read for you by Eric Bjornsson. I'll see you next time.